very much. Okay, as I was saying, for those who are here that don't know what's happened to me in the last five weeks, uh, let me just tell you, thank you. Uh, five weeks ago, my brother Dave, who had been in a uh, long-term battle, but who was doing fine. It's not like he was doing poorly. And all of a sudden, he died. And that was just devastating. We are very, very close, and... Uh, and it was, you know, one of those things where every time I, th I, I'm telling you, when I was flying down on the flight and I was trying to write the announcement on Facebook that he had passed, because there's so many people around the world that know that, and most of them are my Facebook friends, and that's one of the ways that we communicated. I'm telling you, every letter that I would type was like a nail into my heart. And I was crying so bad. It was a, one of these connector flights where you don't get off a plane. It went down to San Francisco and then down to San Diego. And, and I was crying so hard. I just happened to have a free row down to San, San Francisco. But I'm certain there was somebody sitting next to me on the next leg. And I was crying so hard that this, the, the uh, flight attendants, thank God, cleared the row for me. And uh, it was just, you know, I mean, it was just every time I would think about it, I'd just be devastated and lose it. And, and very, very thankfully, I'm past that now. Uh, you know, I'm still having those moments that people who have lost somebody like this, this is the first time I ever have. Uh, I've lost people that, I was, that were, I was close to, but not like this. And, uh, you know, I'm to that place now to where it's not the take your breath away and you just die right there with them. But now it's to that place to where I think about, you know, oh my gosh, he's not going to be there for this. Or I want to talk to him about that. Or I want to, and I'm not going to talk about this anymore because I'll start crying again and I don't want to do that. So, just so that everybody understands, uh, great. This has not shaken me in one iota. To the contrary, everything that God has done through this has demonstrated to me his love and his care in ways that are just, you know, you could never write down, well, here's how I'm going to teach you how to really trust God. You know, that's what we've been hearing in the sermons, right? And yet, that's what's happened. So it's redoubled me in everything that we're doing and in everything that God does. So it's been magnificent. Now, that happened, and then literally two weeks and a couple of days later, my daughter got married. And this is her and me on, a, uh, on the night rehearsal. Uh, you know, we were doing the rehearsal in the church. And I'm telling you, when I walked through these two doors and I saw the 50 people up front that they had and all this stuff, it, it was just, you know, both of our hearts just went, oh my gosh, you know, and, but it was wonderful, and I think the only regret I have about the wedding, the only one is, is we would have loved to have invited a whole lot of people from here, and between what she had planned for a ceremony and my budget and bank account, uh, that just simply wasn't in the cards, and the bottom line was, is it was really, really great, so there's a high on the roller coaster, and then two weeks later, I'm in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, doing a memorial for Dave, which I can't tell if that was a high or a low because somehow it was both at the same time, right? And so it's been a roller coaster. These last few weeks have been as emotional, and I ended up working 18-hour days almost the whole way through because Julie and I took on the memorial. We already had the wedding, and then we took on the memorial too. And there were people from all over the world, and we were having to house them with people there and so on. And it was just an enormous amount of work, and so it was exhausting that way, and then my emotions are just very raw and everything else, and it's been a, you know, uh, 
I, I want to say, you know, I've been gone for five weeks, and I need to come home so I can rest. <laughs> so that's probably not what you want to hear, but, you know, God help me. Uh, I, I have some thanks to give, and one of them is to the staff. The staff at this church is remarkable, and they absolutely covered us in every single way. Yeah. And I want to thank them. I want to say, though, that I don't know exactly where to draw the line on staff because I know that at some point in time we quit paying people, but the truth is I do kind of feel like, I do kind of feel like every person in here is staff in a very real way because we're family, and the way that we do church is so collaborative that it's everybody in here. And I just want to thank you for the, for the love and the grace and the cards and the emails and the phone calls and the texts and the Facebooks and the, everything that just meant so much to me but also the fact that everybody just pulled together and carried this thing and didn't bother us at all about it, and we didn't worry about it at all because we knew the hands that it was in were so extremely capable and able to do it, and if we disappeared forever, it wouldn't really matter, okay? And not that I want to. No, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> we're not going there. But I just want to say, I just want to make it clear what an incredible family this is. I have another category of thanks, and that is to the people that preached, and I need to take a minute and kind of rehearse what they did because it leads right into the sermon. And what I want to say is, is that a couple of days after Dave passed, John Bowderman stepped up and did Mother's Day for me at a short notice, and, you know, thank you. Awesome, thank you. Uh, the week after that, Mike Hatch stood up here, and we were talking about identity at that point in time, our identity in Christ, and Mike Hatch showed us a Trinitarian way of understanding our identity in Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of which are expressing their, themselves through who he's made us to be, that we're all these things expressing in different ways, and it was just, in, it was a great capper to the identity part of what we were doing, but then God did a really interesting shift and the shift was, I just want to show you the flow of what God was doing, because the shift was, is that he had Alex Lawrence come up here and just do a, what I consider to be a jaw-dropping sermon, because the bottom line of the message was, is that God showed Alex how to trust God by not answering his prayers. That doesn't, you can't do the math on that and have it come out right. And yet it's true. And he demonstrated just how much more true it was than what we think of because we're just so limited in how we think about things. And then, Vijay, I just can't thank you enough because what we're talking about is, is if we really are this identity in Christ, if we really are the way that God made us, and we really are, then why don't we see more miracles? But not only that, why don't we see more holiness? And so Vijay stood up here and talked about this, this whole thing about righteousness is not just not just pie in the sky, not just something that grace covers, and you don't really have to worry about it. You know, try, but don't worry. He was saying, no, God has victory for you. And dig in. Get it. Dig in. Go for it. You're going to hear this spirit very much in this sermon. And then the serenity came up, and in the deft way that she always does things, she just brought these things in here and basically told us about Job moments. And a Job moment, for those who weren't here last week, is real simple. The key to understanding the book of Job is, is that at the very beginning of the book, God called Job righteous. And Satan challenged him and said, yeah, sure, but, you know, the reason why he does what you want is because you give him everything, take everything away, and he won't. 
Now that challenge that was made in heaven was never told to Job. And so bad things happened to Job, and Job's accusers came and tried to tell him, you know, well, it's because you got some sin somewhere. If, you know, this one could never happen to somebody that didn't have sin. And God himself is the one that said he was righteous. And what ended up happening was, is that by the time we're done, even Job did come, you know, got pretty mad at God. You know, I don't have this sin. There isn't this problem. And I don't understand why you're doing this to me. This does not make any sense at all to me. And then God shows up. And when God starts to show up about who he really is, Job, Job just says, oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. You know, if you want to use me any way you want to use me, if I never know what was going on, it doesn't matter. If I never know why that happened, it doesn't matter. You're still glorious. You're still working a plan. When I get to heaven, I'll find out about it, and that's enough. Now, I think that's, again, that's a concept that we're going to do because what I want to say is, is this movement from who we are in Christ and then to understanding then why don't our lives look a certain way. You know, we say who we are in Christ forgetting that he died on a cross. Thinking somehow if we're this in Christ, we shouldn't have to do that. And it turns out you do have to do that. But the beautiful thing about God is is that when he's doing something, and I'm today, what I'm about to do with you is I'm about to tell you a word that the Lord has dropped into my heart over the last few months that I think is incredibly important for all of us. And what he, was do what he does in all of these things is, listen, indeed the sovereign Lord never does anything until he reveals his plans to his servants, the prophets. And that's not just the prophets of old that didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of them. You all have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you too can catch the wind of the Spirit where he's going and what he's doing. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm, trying, I'm telling you I've been really stewing over this. Stewing is the right word because it wasn't just waiting on it. It was really going after the Lord. Is the thing that I think you're telling me true or have my own personal circumstances lately just influenced me to look at life a certain way? And I want to tell you that I've been able to travel quite a bit lately and moreover I've had people from all over the country come and all over the world come to the memorial. And I've been able to talk to people all over the country and know that what I'm saying is true all over the country. And I've been able to talk to people, interestingly, from around the world and know that it's not true. You know, which is what I've been saying. I've been saying God's doing something with America right now. And so this is an important moment. So this is where we're headed. Who's our prayer today? Eric. Eric, which Eric? Eric Rasmussen, that is phenomenal. Eric, thank you. Okay, thank you for what you did. Sorry, but with our wedding, thank you for what you did in everything. You are a man of God that I want to be like when I grow up. Lord, uh, I want to also uh, pray today with thankfulness. And I thank you that you have won us, as we sang this morning. And thank you that the Bronx uh, have returned. Thank you also, Lord, for the consistency of your word and the message that's come over these past weeks, even though Kurt has been gone. Amen. Lord, we just ask that that would continue. Amen. And that your spirit would be clear through Kurt today. And we also lift up Eastside Foursquare. And I get a real sense there's many people there today who don't know that you have won them. 
and that, Lord, you would soften hearts and open Amen. ears, make eyes see you in a way they've not before. Amen. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Eric. Perfect. Before I talk to you about the thing that I think the Lord's saying to me, I need to get, I need to set the table properly. And that is by talking about two sort of what I, I would call pet peeves, but which I think are little, little uh, divots in the road or little what are the potholes that we need to be careful about getting into anytime we're talking about the kind of thing we're talking about today, which is what the Lord is doing. And we need to be careful of two things. And here's the first one, is we need to be careful that, that we, when God is stepping up in a way of judgment, are not necessarily the end times. It is very common for people to think, oh, well, God's going to do some judgment, and so therefore... Now, the first thing we have to recognize about that is, is I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I'll just... I don't know how to do it. Okay. The first... I'm going to step up. I'm going to stand up when I get all excited. And this is going to be really fun, okay? If my head jerks to the ground, it's because I'm trying to save the mic. Uh, you do realize that the writers of the Bible, most of them thought that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, that the end was to come then. You do realize that. It's right in their writings. Okay, and they wrote the Bible. Okay, you do realize for 2,000 years, people have been saying God's about to come again. I, I, this came home to me particularly strikingly when I was in my 20s and I read War and Peace. And in War and Peace, there's this little story in the middle of it, well, a little past the middle of it, but right, in the, right just a little past it, there's this story that takes up quite a few chapters, and it really has nothing to do with what came before, and it has nothing to do with what comes after. It was just Tolstoy, this brilliant exegete, just, just doing something important. And here's what he did. He had a character take biblical scripture, I mean, tons of biblical scripture. Tolstoy was great with scripture, strong Christian. Tolstoy took, and this biblical character figures out that the current czar, the actual czar of Russia at that time, was the Antichrist. And Tolstoy works it out, I mean, so much that you're almost kind of, well, he must be, you know, look at that. Everything about Bible says this is the guy. And then, in a almost anticlimactic moment, the guy decides he's going to kill the Antichrist, and he goes to kill him, and right before he can kill him, he gets caught, and that's it. It ends. Now, what Tolstoy was doing was two things that were super important. Here's the first one. He was telling us that all of us need to have a sense of the imminence of the second coming of Christ. What's imminence mean? A sense that it could happen now, that it's near and dear to you, that this is important. The, the, the coming of Christ is not supposed to be something that's going to happen so far in the future that it doesn't matter. And it doesn't make any difference to your life right now. We're supposed to have a sense of his coming all the time. Now, I want to tell you something. A couple of years ago, we spent a couple of years on the book of Revelation. And when God told me we were going into that, one of the things I thought in my head was, that's great because what I'm going to be able to do is show people how it's not necessarily right now because so many people think it's right now. Now, I have to tell you, when I went through the book and got done with the book, I kind of went, well, it could be right now. Okay? I mean, Israel being here, and there's some facts that don't have to allegorize that are in place now that weren't in place back then, even in war and peace time, right? But here's what God did to me, was he was showing me, Kurt, you need to live as if I'm going to come home, as if I'm going to come get you tomorrow. You need to always be living that way. You need to always have that sense that Christ is returning, right? Now, the second thing that he wanted to do, though, Tolstoy was, is he wanted to say, but don't live your life kooky. 
don't, don't do these stupid things. Don't become so wrapped up in end time stuff that it makes you gather water and move to Idaho and build a shelter. Okay? The way that we say it here all the time is really simple. What we say is, if, God, if you knew for certain that God was coming back 30 days from now, would you live today any differently? Because the answer ought to be no. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's the one that's leading you. And it doesn't matter if he's coming back three hours from now or 3,000 years from now. It doesn't matter. Live in the Holy Spirit. Do whatever he's telling you to do. Right? If it makes a difference that he's coming back, it means you're probably doing something you shouldn't be doing. So stop doing that. Okay? And it means you're probably not doing something you should be doing. So start doing that. This is really hard stuff. Okay? You got to go to school a long time and study a lot of books to figure this part out. Okay? I'm not sure the books don't actually help you not figure it out. But anyway. Okay, we got it. So I just wanted to sort of, I want to, before I talk about what I think the Lord is doing in America, I want to knock us off of that sense that it's the end time. And in a very similar light, my second pet peeve is this. You may have noticed that my hair has gone white. Now, I blame you for that. <laughs> I blame you, okay? When I came here, I was blonde or something. I don't know what it was because I don't remember. But within a few years, like a president in office, all the stress, I just went white, okay? So there you go. That's your, on you. But, but the point is, is when you get to where you've lived, and I haven't yet, but I'm close to it now, when you get to live 60, really about 70 years old, when you get to be about 70 years old, have you noticed that people have been Christians for a long time, and then they reach 70, they really become convinced that God just has to judge. Here's why. Think about it. Think about what the morals of this country were 70 years ago. Think about it. I mean, if you were born in that day, if you grew up in that morality, and then you see what we live in, it's, it's incomprehensible that God would have let this happen. And then if God was letting us do what we wanted to do, surely it's incomprehensible that he has not yet judged it. Do you see that? And so you get a lot of people running around that are older, like myself, saying something, and here's what younger people say. It doesn't happen. Let me show you something here. This is in the last 14 years. Okay, this is the heading. Americans continue to shift left on key moral issues. You see the top one, gay and lesbian relationships, and you see that, that particular measurement right there, that top one, that is the largest change in percentage points in the shortest amount of time of any moral issue that we've ever been able to measure. We've shifted faster and further, and you know this, five years ago, it wasn't like it is today. I mean, th this stuff has changed just boom. And, and I wanna say something, see, when you go to, I preached about this a few weeks, a few months back, when, when Eastlake did their thing and they became fully inclusive and all that simply means is, is that they said, you know, we don't believe the Bible says there's anything wrong with this, A, and so we're going to marry and, let them be on, and have people on staff that are LGBTQ and we're gonna do this and that, and we're just gonna, they, they are loved by God because the nature of their relationship is different than the nature of the relationship that the Bible condemns. Now we look at that carefully, and if you, if you think that way, please listen to the sermon. It was back on about the 25th of, or 26th or so of January, 
Okay, you can listen to us talking about are these arguments true? And I just want to tell you I don't think they are at all. But the bottom line is, a millennial after that sermon came up to me and here's what he said. He said, what, what, what people that are even in their 40s don't understand is what a settled issue this is for us. We don't think there's anything wrong with this. We think it's quite the opposite. We think that people that have a problem with it really do have a problem of another nature and it isn't actually biblical. They're just couching it in biblical terms and the bottom line is, and this is what this person said, and this person loves me and I love this person, but what the person said was is, if you really want to know how millennials think about it, we just think that you're old and you're stupid and you're going to die soon and then when we get in control, it'll just be normal. Now that wasn't, he wasn't being rude. You need to talk to millennials and find out what they actually believe because I'm telling you, the shift is increasing. Which makes me as an old person say, well, God surely got to step in, right? That's what I say as an older person. How could this go so fast, so bad, you know, changing so radically to well, there's, something's got to happen, right? And yet nothing does. And this isn't a new problem. Because you see, you can go back to the Old Testament and right before God went into his 400 silent years in the book of Malachi, last book written, before the 400 silent years before Christ, right then, about 400 BC, watch what the people were saying to God. God is saying to them, you're saying it doesn't pay to serve God. What do we ever get out of it? When we did what he said and went around with long faces serious about God of the angel armies, what difference did it make? Those who take life into their own hands are the lucky ones. They break all the rules and get ahead anyway. They push God to the limit and they get by with it. Do you hear this? That was written 400 years before Christ. And I'm telling you right now, there's a bunch of Christians that are starting to wonder these same kinds of things. If, if, if old people said for years, God surely got to judge us, and then he didn't. God surely got to judge us, and then he didn't. God surely got to judge us, and then he didn't. At some point in time, you get to thinking God's not going to judge it. Don't you? This is the spirit that we're doing battle with right now. And that is, in this case, Christians losing heart. That God will actually act, ever. Let me make it clear. The problem is, is that we look at life in 60, 80, and 100 year segments and not in larger segments. Which it, here's how Romans goes. Romans goes like this, Romans 1.18 through the end. Here's how it goes. It says, people push away the truth of God and they push it away, and they push it away, and they push it away, but I don't do anything because, I'm, because I know how harmful. They, they don't know how harmful it's going to be. I do. And so in grace, I cover them, and I cover them, and I cover them, and I cover them. But finally, it gets to a place, finally, it gets to a place to where the whole, the whole culture goes, and it falls down to a new level. There's a protection that's withdrawn. There's a consequence that comes on people, and it's much harder than it was before, and the blessing is being withdrawn. Not completely, but to some degree. And then here's what we do, good lobsters that we are in the pot as the water's being turned up. We think, oh, well, this is livable. And so another generation lives with the temperature at that temperature and thinks this is the way it is, and so we push God away again because we can handle this, not knowing that there's another to happen. And then it does. And then it does. And then it does. God is not acting in a hundred year time frames. 
He's acting in much longer time frames. We're going to look at it, but let me just show you what God has to say to everybody here that wants to know that he does in fact see. Because here's what God says to these people. He knows that the, the Jewish people as a whole are starting to get, what difference does it make? I'm just going to go ahead and do it because it doesn't make any difference because you've been protected from the consequence of your actions. Then those whose lives honored God got together and talked it over. Now listen. God saw what they were doing and listened in. A book was opened in God's presence and minutes were taken of the meeting and the names of the God-fearers written down. All the names of those who honored God's name. God of the angel armies says, they're mine, all mine. They'll get special treatment when I go into action. I treat them with the same consideration and kindness that parents give the child who honors them. Once more, you'll see the difference it makes between being a person who does the right thing and one who doesn't, between serving God and not serving him. Now, if I am a current age person and I'm fairly cynical, I can say you can say that kind of thing all that you want. It doesn't make it true. But yet, if you will look at the Bible, what is the Bible after all? Is it written like every other religious text or religious text about how to do, what to do and not do? Because that's what all religious texts, you know what the Bible actually is? It's a history, a, a, a history written over 2,000 years. And here's what God wants us to become. Historians. His story. He wants us to understand his story. Does it sometimes take longer for God and his patience to get to something than what you thought it should take? Sometimes? No, the answer is always. His patience is longer and greater than you'll ever know. You think it's gotten down as bad as it can get. You have no idea how much worse it can get. And, and God keeps letting it go down and go down. He's trying to stop it. But he lets it get down to where it finally gets down so deep and so bad that everybody, Christians and non, go, this is messed up and something needs to change. And then God resets it. Now let me show what I'm talking about. I said one of the reasons why God doesn't move in the way that we think he should move is because we look at life in 100-year segments. I want to show you that there's actually another segment that's shown throughout, all, throughout Scripture, and it's 400 years. You see a cycle repeatedly. Remember 400 years of wilderness? 400 year, I mean, 400 years of Egypt? 400 years, 400 years. In fact, watch this. Now watch. This is a timeline, and just to keep it more simple, we're going to start at 400 B.C., and then we're just going to go 400 increments all the way up to 2,000. I want to show you that though it's longer than your 100-year time frame, that Malachi thing about God actually moving can be proven. Watch. We start off with God sees the silent years, 400 years like the previous cycles. God goes into silence, right? He stops speaking. And how long does he go for? 400 years. And by the end of 400 years, by the time the generations that have lived during that 400 years, they finally get to a place to where they are what? Ripe for something to happen. And it does. Jesus. Christianity. Now note that it spreads west. That'll become important in just a second. But see, Jesus comes, you know, 33, you know, well, he's born a little earlier than that, but you get the drift, okay? And so here we go. Now, 400 years. What happens? You fall Rome. 
See, for 400 years, now watch, you remember when, when God, when, when, they're, when the disciples are going out, they want to go east. There's a whole lot of people in the east. And God says, no, go west. And the west is frankly fairly uncivilized, particularly compared to the ancient civilizations in the east. They're a bunch of, I hope nobody, I hope nobody watches Game of Thrones, okay? I'm sure lots of people in here do because as Vijay pointed out, we're all completely compromised on all kinds of ways. But, but the bottom line is, okay, but the bottom line is there's a lot of head lopping that goes on in Game of Thrones. That actually was what the Europe was like. There was just a whole lot of people cutting each other's heads off to get stuff, okay? It hadn't reached a civilization and, a, and a, all that kind of stuff. You got 400 years, though, where God does do something with Rome. Remember, Rome is owning the whole of Southern Europe, all the way into the Middle East, and all of the north part of Africa. And all roads lead to Rome. Safe passage for the gospel, the people who are carrying the gospel to the world. Rome becomes the, the postal express, the way to get the message out. Rome becomes, for 400 years, the way that the gospel is disseminated throughout the world. And then, finally, Rome gets to a place to where it's just so despicable and so reprehensible and the blood of the martyrs, but not just that, the debauchery and the sexual and the everything. And finally, God says, enough. Now, it takes 400 years. I mean, they were pretty bad at the time of Jesus. But they got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until finally said, that's it. It's finally gotten down to that lower level. Everybody knew that it was completely corrupt. I mean, you get to Nero and people like that. So Rome falls, and you go into the Dark Ages. An interesting thing here in the Dark Ages is, is Christianity was still spreading, but it was phenomenally corrupted. It was, a, it was dark, not just in terms of the, having Rome fall apart and so all the warring stuff that was happening and so on. But Christianity itself was incredibly compromised and it was a power tool of, of people and governments and so on. It was, it was incredibly corrupt. So that goes on for how long? 400 years because guess what happens? Now watch this. This is one that's going to surprise you. Islam conquers Europe. We still don't even know this because we don't know our history because we're not historians. We just want to live in the moment. Right? YOLO. <laughs> Islam conquers much of Europe. You, you realize Muhammad dies towards the end of the 600s, and, and in 710 is the first foray into Europe, and by the 800s, 400 years, by the 800s, Islam pretty much, Christianity still exists in Europe, but under the prayer call of Islam. It's everywhere in Europe. Everywhere. We don't think of that, do we? We never think of Europe as having been Islam, Muslim. But it was, massively so. And then the Crusades come, and Christians get bashed about the head on that kind of stuff. But there was a lot of bashing of everything going on back then. So the bottom line is, 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 is now, now look what happens. 400 years later, Europe is finally Christian again. Truly Christian. See it? God giving him another chance. He finally resets it at the 400 years again. So they get to try again. But here's what happens. And you kind of see it in the fading that I've got there. They, they become Christian again, but they really don't. They really don't get it. But even then, God lets it go for how long? Another 400 years. Until what happens now? The Reformation. Okay? The Reformation happens. Something's wrong with Christianity. This is not what God intended. 
And the Reformation comes along and they start, they start doing a new kind of Christianity. And it does very much take root in Europe, but it really comes to its own in America. 1610, 400 years, 1610 is Plymouth Rock. Am I right on that? I'm wrong, how long, but at 16 something. 1607, I'm three years off, sorry. <laughs> Reformation, America begins, okay? How long has it been since then? Where are we? The volcanoes go off every 400 years? Where are we? That's the question. In fact, I've shown you this before, but I want to show you this now so that you really get it, so that we all really have it in our hearts. When God didn't let the gospel go east, he had it go west. It was as if it were traveling the path of the sun, S-U-N. The S-O-N was traveling the path of the S-U-N. And what is happening in the world was, it starts in the Middle East right there, it goes up into Asia, into Europe, stays there for quite a while, and then it comes over to America, and then it comes across America, and guess what's lighting up right now? China, India, India, I forget what it is, but it's like in a couple of years, China will have something like 200 million Christians. It is my belief that China, like other places. Now, I might be wrong. Jesus may come before this. But it is my belief that China, like everywhere else in the Far East, like everywhere else on the face of the earth, will have a full range of this full cycle. And as they are lighting up, is there anybody in here that doesn't understand that China's going to take over pretty quick? Is there anybody in here that doesn't get that economically, socially, culturally? Does, does everybody understand how rapidly the world is changing right now and where it's going to go to the center of power. <laughs> God is going to give that continent, though, and this is one of the things I think we don't, we think about economics and we think about that they're not Christian and then all that, but the fact of the matter is, is I think that China is going to become a Christian nation. And I think they're going to go through the full thing too until God then runs them through the whole cycle and then it's going to come back to the Middle East where it ends. Now that's what I think. That's why I say I don't think it's happening right now. I think what is happening right now is a chunk. Because the big question that faces every person in this room massively is, does America fail? As God would define failure. Does America fail? Now, I'm saying this because I'm asking you to do something with the word I'm now going to give you, the thought I'm going to give you. I'm asking you, having given you all of this precursor, I'm saying when the evening comes, you say it'll be good weather because the sky's red in the morning. Today it'll be stormy because the sky's going to be red and threatening. What does this mean? It means in the affairs of our life, we're able to discern what the heck is going on because it matters to us. It's important, right? It's important not to set sail into a headwind that's going to drown you. So we figure that stuff out. Here's the stuff we don't take nearly as seriously. The things of the Spirit, the things that God is doing in these long waves. 
You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. Right? So here's what happened. I told you this, this first part of it, I told you already. Uh, Eastlake made that decision to go full inclusion. I was on my walk. I wasn't thinking about Eastlake. I was just praying and talking to God like I do. And as I was walking out of the blue, literally God told me, the switch has flipped. And, and I instantly understood that to mean that there was a new day upon us, a new season, a new, there was a, re, there was a and, I, and I, I, you know, I don't know if it's a 400-year switch or what it is. I know what it is, is, I know for certain what it is in my heart is, is that there was a, we were at a certain level, and we pushed God away, 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 and we finally got to thinking that maybe nothing was going to happen, and now that we finally become comfortable that we could do anything we want to do, God's going to let it go down to a new level. And what I told you back then in July was, I said, what's going on is, in my belief, and your, for your discernment, I said, I think what's going on is that God is withdrawing his protection. Not completely, thankfully, but that he is withdrawing his protection so that we suffer more of the consequences of our actions. Now, thankfully, I'm not out in the wilderness alone crying this out. Those of you who follow this kind of material know how much there is. Now, there's always a lot of prophetic material, so there's always somebody out there crying something and raising money on it, okay? But I just want to say, when a person like Ann Graham Lott gets involved, that makes me feel a little more solid that maybe this is actually true. And here's Ann Graham Lott saying, warning that judgment is near. Now, I'm going to, are we ready? Okay, I'm just going to play a short little clip with you. Okay, and I want you to hear from her mouth what she feels like God is doing and said to her. She was at a conference. I walked off the platform after both um, teaching Joel chapter 1 and chapter 2. It was as though the hair stood up on the back of my neck, and, and I knew I had said things I had not studied, I had not prepared, I had not pre-thought, um, and I knew God was speaking. And the message was very clear to me. And it was that the day of the Lord is near. That, that's the theme of the book of Joel. And the day of the Lord is a time of judgment. It's a time when God's patience runs out. It's a, it's a day of reckoning. And I felt that God was saying that the day of the Lord is near. And I felt specifically he was warning America. And so, um, you know, I, I came away from that very sobered. First of all, let me make a plug for next week. I don't know quite what we're going to do next week because I go pray and then I do whatever, hopefully whatever God tells me. But I think I'm going to be talking the Mother's Day sermon that I had about women and ministry and so on. And I want to just want to say something. Uh, you know, she used to never speak in front of men and so on. She does all the time now. Uh, and you want to, you know, I think Franklin Graham is wonderful. But if you've ever heard him speak and you've heard her speak, you know where the anointing went. Okay? Because when you hear her speak... It's just, she's phenomenal, okay? So, for whatever reason, right? All right, okay, God's good. But, but the point is, she talked about end times there, and I just want to say, for me, okay, I think that she was, I think that God was talking to her about a shunk, a, a, and she interpreted it as end times. As you hear me saying, I don't, but let me say something else. I hope I'm wrong, because if Jesus wants to come back tomorrow, I'm in. Okay? I do want to say something. If you want Jesus to come back tomorrow because your life sucks so bad today, you might want to work on your life a little harder. Okay? Because if he doesn't come back, it's going to be a drag. Okay? Just a thought. 
Jesus coming back is not an escape. Okay? We're supposed to get our lives right in the Holy Spirit, and he can get them right. Okay? But I'm just about to come against what I just said in a very weird way. When I talked to you a few months ago and I said I felt like the Lord was telling me that there was a, a, a switch had flipped and it was a new season, I felt at that time that it was one of these Romans things where we went boom and we were, the covering was coming off and this was happening. And I said something at that point in time. I said, I think that God has had us in empowered because I think that our witness is going to greatly increase. Our power in our witness is going to greatly increase as things start sucking for people. God's mercy and love and grace is going to start meeting people in ways that are going to be quite striking and will bring them back to the Lord. They'll, they'll have a clearer choice between better and not better. Okay? So I really did believe that. Now there is something that I think I missed. And this is stupid of me because I should have known it from the very beginning. And this is what I discovered since I said that word. This is what's been happening to me almost constantly since I said that word. And that was God has reminded me, I'm going to just show it to you this way, something again. This is Malachi, remember? Malachi, last book. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he's going to prepare the way before me. This is before the 400 years is talking about Christ. Talking about John and then Christ. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Listen to this. Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. Can I just say, a fire that refines metal and a bleach that cleans clothes is not a comforting metaphor. <laughs> it's a painful metaphor. It's talking about who can stand when God starts to correct. But who's he telling that he's going to correct first? He'll sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the congregation because the Levites are cool. Because the Levites are good. The priests, me, I'm good. No, I'm not. I'm just as filthy rag as any person in here. It is, Vijay, back to Vijay's sermon. It is remarkable the amount of sin and failure and unholiness that we are putting up with. It is remarkable. And I don't say this to make you go out and become some monk in the wilderness. I'm telling you, somehow we have to engage our culture in a way that is different than we are currently. Because he's going to refine the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Do you hear that? Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people. See, now he's gone to the people. He's saying, as does Peter, the time has come for judgment and it must begin with God's household. Now, let's just see whether or not this is true. A little thought experiment. That's not the right way to do it. I want you to think about the people that you know that have a responsibility spiritually over you or other people. Think about the pastors, the people that you know. Think with me for a moment about, do you, do you, do you have any understanding? We, we have Mark Driscoll here, and now we have Ryan. Do you have any idea how many big, big, big-time pastors have fallen in the last few months? 
Do you realize that Mars Hill, the thing that happened here, is the first time that anybody's ever seen anything like this? That was a church of over 10,000 people that simply disappeared in a matter of weeks. It just disappeared. It just wasn't anymore. Now there's all kinds of Mars Hill campuses and people are doing a good job and they're going to find God and God's going to be with them, right? But do you understand how that never happens? That never happens. And yet it's happening. I mean, there's just this incredible thing that's going on. We don't have to go as far away as other churches right here. You will love me when I get done with this, but you will not love me now. So sorry. But Justine Morris is going through hell. Now, remember we talked about Job moments? Here's the key to a Job moment. Not your fault. Not your fault. And you cry and you pray and you seek the Lord, and the ways that he met you in the past don't happen. Because God, as Serenity said, as Alex said, as we've been talking, God is trying to do something with you bigger than what you know. And Justine is going through hell. It has been, can you imagine living with a migraine now for, I don't know how long it's been, but it's been months. Almost, almost continually. And nothing has relieved it. Now, I've been praying for, lots of people have been praying for, there's lots of things that we can do, and let me say something. I'm not giving you a word about things are gonna suck and you just need to put up with it. I'm not telling you to not fight it. I'm telling you learn how to fight it. I'm telling you learn how to stand up and fight. And then when it doesn't go your way, keep fighting. And then when it still doesn't go your way, start learning all the things that God wants to teach you because God is teaching you the greatest things that you're ever gonna learn. Because there's going to be a whole lot of other people that need that. It's not just Justine that's going through that. I'm going through this. This thing with Dave rocked my world. But you don't know this. I've, I've mentioned it a few times, but you can't understand it unless you're living with it. But I live under a financial cliff that is so large and so devastating that it really is just every day I'm just like, well, thank God I'm standing today. Now, you could say that was my fault. I don't care bottom line, here's what I'm saying. I just had a chance to meet a whole bunch of pastors and a whole bunch of people and everything else, and most of these pastors won't do what I just did with you and tell you what's actually going on, but I'm telling you, when they talk to me, I'm hearing it all stinking over the place, that the people that are responsible for other people's souls are going through things that are devastating and that are not their fault, and they cannot get out of it, and they cannot figure out what the heck is going on. And I'm telling you this word as I'm trying to speak to them and to you and to me and to everybody else and say this. God is taking us through something, and we're supposed to fight it and have faith and learn and grow and, and do everything we can, and it doesn't matter how long it lasts. What matters is, is how much we're getting out of it and the, the way that we're growing. Because the fact of the matter is, is that God is going to train us up. And let me just tell you, let me show you something. Let me show you how important this is. This is the Pew Research Poll, which many of you have probably seen. If you haven't, I don't know what to say, but 2007 to 2014, this is seven years. In the last seven years, Catholic and mainline Protestant have fallen through the floor. Seven years. You project out where they are, they're almost non-existent in 30, 40 years. 
That's the rates of change. These are straight lines, by the way. If you actually do them on the curve and the rate of acceleration that's happening, it's much worse than this. Not only that, but look at what the second biggest grouping of people now is in the country of America. We're 70 to 80% still profess Christianity, and yet today, if, and it was 7% months ago, if 6% of the country is in church today, that will be a high number. So 70% say that they love God. Truth is, I don't know how. I, you know, they just profess it. The fact is, is we're down, easily we're down in the low teens. We might be in single digits about people who you would actually call Christians. Believing in the Bible, believing in the Lord, trying to follow him. That's the truth. And you see what's happening? Do you see the rate of change of that 16 one? You see how steep that blue one is? The unaffiliated, you see that, how steep that is? If you took that and graphed it, it goes like this. <laughs> its rate of acceleration right now is unbelievable. It will soon, very soon, be the largest single identifiable group. And what that means is I don't believe there's a God, I don't believe in religion, I don't believe in any of that, I don't have anything to do with it, period. And this will happen in the next few years unless God does something right, right? Well, God's doing something, isn't he? At least that's what I'm arguing. Can I just, I just need to insert this one little thought. I love Christianity Today, but I feel very badly that they did this. Look at what their headline was. Pew, evangelicals stay strong as Christianity crumbles in America. Evangelicals stay strong. Did you see what it was, actually? You see, a, we're going down. B, what they're saying is we're keeping up with population growth. Here's what I thought evangelical meant. Evangelists. Here's what I thought evangelist meant, bringing people to the Lord. Here's what I thought bringing people to the Lord meant, more people knowing him, the kingdom of God growing. For, for Christianity today to say evangelicals are good because they're not sucking as worse as everybody else, that's unbelievable. I'm really shocked that they did that. They should have said, this is a crisis. That, that, this isn't a time to spin something. This is a time to learn something. This is a time to say things are happening here and in a way that is happening right under our noses and you know it. Why? Because you only got to look at your family. You only got to look at your friends. You only got to look at your workplaces. You only have to look at the media. There's not anywhere you can look in this culture and this country that you're not going to see it and how fast it's happening. And you can call me a gray-haired fuddy-duddy along with Ann Lott or you can please take this to prayer and say, is there something else going on, Lord? Because if there is, we need to be prepared. And the way that we need to be prepared is he cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they'll produce even more. That's what's happening to the body of Christ. He's not just doing that, by the way, because he doesn't want to lose us. You know the old saying goes like this, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? You know what we don't get about that? What it actually means, because here's what it actually means. If it doesn't almost kill you, you don't actually get stronger. <laughs> right? 
I don't see it meaning anything other than that. Okay? If it doesn't almost kill you, you don't actually get stronger. That's what I'm arguing for. That's what I think God is doing. I think he's trying to tell a word before it happens so that when it happens, you can embrace it. And no matter whether God answers the prayer the way that you think he should or not, you can be in the process of what he's doing, which is trying to strengthen you. Do you see it? This is what he's doing. You guys, here's what we really are. We're at boot camp, baby. And we're not just in boot camp like the army. We're in the Marines, which is already the best of the best. And then there's the SEALs that are the best of the best of the best. And you do realize that to become a SEAL, you already have to be a Marine, which means you're really something. And then to be a SEAL, you do realize that over half the people that try to be SEALs are washed out because it breaks them. These are the strongest people that this country produces. And the things that they make them go through literally break their minds. They cannot take it anymore. Remember the little, you've seen it in the movies and so on. This is a real thing. There's a bell. And when you just simply can't take it anymore, you climb up the beach and you ring the bell. And I know people have had to ring that bell and what it did to them. They came to the limits and they just couldn't do it anymore. Well, here's the cool thing about God. He's got everybody in SEAL training, but God knows you and he knows how to strengthen you without washing you out. Because it's not a one program fits all. It's a fingerprinted program knowing precisely what you need, how you need it, when you need it, where you need it, in the way that you need it. He knows exactly what you need. And the fact is, is what you need is something you don't want. Isn't that true? Isn't it true? This is what's going on. Okay? This is a letter that I wrote to my family a couple of weeks before Dave passed. This is an important, tender thing to me. Handle it with care. This is to my brothers, their wives, and all of the cousins. This was, this was I say a couple of weeks, this is about a month before. So this would be about two months or more right now. What was what's happening with Dave and Muzz, that's what we call my mom, and she's having some stuff where she can't remember words and so on. And you need to understand, our family has never experienced anything but good stuff, honestly. I'm not saying we haven't had a hard moment or two, but I'm just telling you, our family, I, I really, I've said this to you bluntly, our family is like this just unbelievable thing where it's just been like under such a bubble of protection, it's just ridiculous. I mean, I really have believed that. I mean, nobody died, and people are healthy, and they're all smart and strong and good, and it's just unbelievable. What with what's happening with Dave and Muzz and some pretty other serious things in the Brunk family world, it's begun to feel to me like the incredible, amazing bubble of blessing that this family has lived in might be being pulled back a bit, at least for now. Always believing that whatever is happening is God doing something in love, I've begun to wonder if perhaps things are going to get so tough in this country and that God is lovingly going to toughen us up so that we would not only withstand the hardships to come, but we'd be able to minister to others. Then about a week ago on a prayer call with Dave, I suddenly had a strong thought that I believed to be from God. I felt him quicken to me that he had poured out his mercy, love, and protection over this family for decades now, something he was pleased to do, but which has had the unintended consequence of making us soft. So now he's calling us to raise up and fight in faith. He showed me how all of the Bronx, male and female, of all the Bronx, male and female, Dave is the one with the most fight in him, which is to say, I thought, oh, shoot. 
Which is to say, I thought the Lord was saying he had given us a reason to fight for the one who fights the very most. I can tell you this was not just wishful thinking about Dave, a sort of anger at the cancer. Instead, it felt very much to me like God was calling our family to stand up and fight as he would lead, not just for Dave, but for everything. To not look at bad things happening and simply say, oh well, trust God, but rather to stand up and fight against what the canker worm is trying to steal. He has quickened to me that this is not against faith nor trust nor dependence upon him, but rather that as much as he taught us his utter, complete, and loving sovereignty, he is now teaching us to be instruments of strength, power, and life-changing authority. As they said about Jesus, no one ever spoke with such authority. Jesus spoke and it happened. We speak and maybe it might happen. This is not God and it is not acceptable. To whom much has been given, much is expected. I believe God is giving us a rallying cry. Who will respond? I didn't just write that for my family. I wrote that thinking about what God was doing in this sermon. This is where I think that we are. The word says that when the times get tough, false messiahs and false prophets rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, God's chosen ones. Why isn't it possible? Because God told us what he was going to do beforehand, and then when it happened, we got strengthened in it. We got stronger. We understood that when things don't go the way that you want, it doesn't mean God's not there. 